This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's our weekly podcast bringing you an in-depth interview with a big-name newsmaker. He's one of the best-known names in investing. He co-founded the private equity behemoth Blackstone. Steve Schwartzman, he writes about the founding of the firm and more in his new book. It's called What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. We spoke to Steve about his book, about the P.E. world, about China, growing up in Philadelphia. Here's that conversation. So if you think private equity, you definitely think of Steve Schwartzman. He co-founded the private equity behemoth that is Blackstone today with Pete Peterson in the mid-1980s after a successful career on Wall Street. He writes about his path or what he calls a collection of inflection points that led him to who he is and where he is today. It's all in his new book, What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. It's so great to sit down with you. Congratulations on the book. Oh, thanks. Fun to be here. Well, and if you could see us, you could see that we both have very well-worn <laughs> copies of this Highlighted. book. It's really a great read, Steve. Congratulations, as Carol said. You know, one of the things that really jumps out to me is the stories of Wall Street, the stories from your early days, sort of getting into it, DLJ, Lehman, of course, Blackstone later on. How has Wall Street changed over the course of your career? Well, Wall Street's changed enormously. Uh, when, when I got to Wall Street, uh, uh, there, there were a very large number of uh, firms uh, doing different things. Uh, when, when negotiated commissions uh, were implemented uh, in May Day in 1975, the cost structure of most of the firms was very high. And, and what happened is they were no longer competitive when somebody offered to do a brokerage trade for a fraction. Uh, and so you, you had this uh, consolidation. Uh, that occurred uh, with firms going out of business or merging with other firms. Uh, and, and ultimately, you ended up with, you know, 10 firms right. uh, down from probably, in terms of active firms, probably 150. So, so, so it, was a, it was a dramatic change that, that happened over a 10 to 15-year period. And, and as a result of that, Everything changed. Is it a better Wall Street today? It's a different Wall Street. Uh, it's certainly a much more efficient Wall Street. It's a Wall Street that can mobilize much more uh, capital. It's a world uh, that, that has printed so much money, uh, not just in the United States, but the deficits that have run, uh, that, that it's easy uh, to, to aggregate a lot of money to do a lot of things. It feels like so much of what you've become and what you've created really does go back to those early days, first at DLJ briefly, and then obviously business school, but Lehman Brothers, that's where you were really forged uh, in a lot of ways. Talk to us about that time, the lessons you took from that experience. Well, Lehman was, a, at that point, a fascinating place in the in the investment banking But world. a difficult place. I, I would say my, my first... Uh, day at work, somebody walked out of the elevator and welcomed me and said, uh, you're very lucky to work here uh, because uh, nobody here will ever stab you in the back. Uh, actually, they'll just walk right up to you and stab you in the front. <laughs> and I remember going home, uh, and my wife said, how was your first day at work? And I said, this is going to be a really interesting experience. Well, there's a line in your book that you say, Lehman, um, you write how your exit from Lehman had shown you Wall Street at its worst with everyone for themselves. 
Yeah, it was Lehman got into financial trouble, and right. and you know uh, my own view, and everybody at the firm would have a different view is is that the grown-ups didn't protect the institution; they were too worried that the that the uh, CEO who got the firm in trouble would fire them if if they sort of took him on, and and uh, as a result, uh, the firm was sort of frozen, and we we had uh, mark to market. Loss in terms of our net worth, and so we ha- were forced to uh, sell the business uh, because if it was discovered that the net worth had sort of gotten close to disappearing, then your ratings would go, and, and the firm would collapse. So, so you know, I, I, lo- I looked at that, and this is a firm that was, I guess, about 150 years old, something like that, and and say, how how can this ever happen? Mm. And I never wanted anything uh, like that to happen uh, to anybody I was associated with. On the other hand, it was a fascinating place with fascinating people. Uh, it was before I joined, before there were any MBA classes. Right. So the people who worked there were like ex-CIA agents, somebody from uh, the entertainment business, you know, uh, somebody from the oil patch. Everybody had a lot of different points of view. Uh, and it was a fascinating place. That's why I went to work there. And you forged some incredibly important relationships as well, not the least of which, maybe among the most important, if not the most important, was with Pete Peterson. You know, you guys come out of that experience sort of scarred in different ways to, to, <laughs> to a large extent. You start having breakfast every morning, trying to figure out uh, what's going to happen next. Describe for us, if you will, what was at the crux of your relationship with Pete? Well, Pete was 21 years older than me. He was known all over the United States, and I was the young guy. Uh, and Pete was a very uh, structured, uh, summa cum laude type of process thinker, uh, which was great. Uh, but I, I was more of a, I guess you would call it, sort of intuitive uh, type of uh, thinker. And and so when we did things together, um, you know, he he would let me do like – all the execution because for a while he sort of like try and rehearse what we do. And I said, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll walk in the room. I'll know. I got this, right? I got this. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just, you know, it, it, it'll happen. And, and, and it does. So, so, you know, we were a very good team for a very long time, uh, over 30 years. Uh, and, um, you know, sort of incredibly productive and easy to deal with because we each, approach the world, uh, you know, somewhat somewhat differently. Except when you guys went out on your own, and that first time when you were looking for some money, you have a great story in the book. Uh, there's a lot of rain involved, and you said it, I think at one point, like, Pete kind of looked at you like, what'd you get me into? Well, anybody who's ever started anything, doesn't have to be on Wall Street, anybody who started anything, including not-for-profits, it doesn't go the way you think. Everybody who starts something believes they're going to be very successful or they wouldn't start it. And what you find is that the world is not always waiting for you. Mm. In fact, sometimes the world doesn't even respond to you. So when we started, we set out about 500 letters expecting people we used to do business with to call us and give us an order and the phone never rang. That's shocking, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, just normal courtesy. Uh, in the incident you're talking about is when we started our private equity business. 
you know, I would always call ahead if we were lucky enough to even get an appointment to make sure it was all set. I did that we on a solicitation at MIT, and we right. flew up from New York uh, and for a 3 o'clock meeting. We were there like a quarter to 3, and we knock on the door. And, you know, I can remember what that door looked like, you know, with that sort of, uh, you know, frosted glass so mm-hmm. you can't see into it with printed letters on it. And, you know, you keep knocking on it. Nobody comes. And um, so, so some janitor came by and I said, excuse me, we're having trouble getting in the door. He said, well, that, that shouldn't be a problem, uh, but nobody's there. <laughs> I, I said, why aren't they there? He said, well, they left for the weekend. I said, but, but I called them. They're expecting us. Right. He said, I don't know. They left for the weekend. And, and so, you know, that was like a complete like waste of time. Right. But but then what happened is, you know, some rainstorms came and, you know, we, we didn't have a car and driver. No we Uber had lift. nothing. <laughs> we had nothing. We didn't even have an umbrella. And so you wait, you know, like 15, 20 minutes for the rain to abate. It kept getting worse. So, so I just walked out into the rain to try and hail a cab. But, you know, from their administrative building, I was not the only person, right? Right, and and the people who went to MIT were more clever than me. They knew how many streets up to stand. So I'm like standing in the rain, soaking wet, and, and then I realize I'm going to get nothing. So so I said, okay, I'm going to have to bribe somebody who's in a cab to let me in a cab. So after they drop them off, then I'll be able to go right. to the airport, taking Pete along with me, who's standing under the. The covered area and not wet. With steam coming out of his ears, though, I'm <laughs> not, guessing. Not complete steam yet. Okay? <laughs> to come. So, so, to I, come. so I tried with, you know, like 20 bucks and, you know, I'd be knocking on people's windows. You know, they wouldn't turn them down. You know, it's just what you would expect. So, so I increased it to $30, but these were $1986. This is more than $30. And it's real money. Know, I finally found somebody and they let us in. So Pete had to come and join me. So the rain was just <laughs> deluge. And, you know, he's walking out in a very dignified way, but there's no way you can be dignified when you end up being soaking wet. And, you know, he sort of looked at me and gave me one of those. What did you get me into? Uh, so. so obviously things have gone better since then. Uh, but I do just wonder a little bit. From, from a Wall Street and an investing perspective, from the creation of Blackstone, if you were to pick one sort of catalytic moment, and you talk a lot about inflection points in yeah. the book, what was the moment with Blackstone where you thought, okay, we've made it? Was it a deal? Was it a hire? Was it an exit? What was it? Well, there are all of those things that are keys, as you've identified. There was one moment, uh, and we were raising our first buyout fund, and I said – some modest objective of a billion dollars, which would have made us either the second or third biggest fund in the world, and, and, and neither Pete nor I had ever made an investment. So, so this is somewhat of an assertion mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that the world wasn't taking up. And we, we had burned all of our close relationships, and we, we had like $75 million, but it was all contingent on getting to $500 because nobody wanted to be too big. And we'd almost run out of everybody. And, uh, and we had a meeting at the Prudential Insurance uh, Company in New Jersey, which was a lunch. Uh, and um, we weren't close to the Prue. 
uh, and we came up with a concept because just selling a private equity fund wasn't selling uh, that we put in our advisory uh, revenues uh, to, to, to create a higher return for the investor. And so, so I was going through this, um, this concept as we were eating lunch uh, at Prudential, which I, I had trouble with anyhow because the menu didn't make sense. I didn't realize that, that instead of the price next to things, <laughs> there were calories. I couldn't understand you know, why the desserts cost so much. <laughs> so, so, so I'm sitting there and doing my, my thing. Uh, and the chief financial officer is a person named Garnett Keith, uh, and he was eating a, a tuna on white bread cut on a diagonal. Uh, and, you know, I was watching him eat as, as I was pitching. Uh, and, you know, he finished the first half of the sandwich. And then he finished half of the second part of the sandwich. And he looked up and he said, you know, I like this. I'll take $100 million. And at that point, Prudential, which was the largest investor in, um, in private equity in the world, uh, the gold standard, I, I just couldn't believe that he did that because if he did it, other people right. would follow mm-hmm. and we would be successful. And I just kept watching and hoped he wouldn't choke on the rest of the sandwich. <laughs> because Lunch is over, right? Th- then we get nothing. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, all entrepreneurs have, have many moments where – you go from you know, like certain failure uh, to to hope and 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 you know sort of success that that happened to be one of them you know it's funny in your book too you write you can't learn to be a manager but you can learn to be an entrepreneur you can't, you can't learn. I'm sorry. You can't learn. You can learn to be. Let's try that. You again. can learn to be a manager, but you can't learn to be an entrepreneur. an entrepreneur. Because being an entrepreneur involves seeing a lot of things simultaneously, putting them together, and have. The desire and the uh, the ability to just say, "Okay, this is going to work." I'm just going out there to make it happen. There is no fallback. Yeah. There is no net. You know, when when you're up on the high wire, and you know, the only reason you do that is that you are sure. Mm-hmm. Now, the fact that nine out of ten new businesses fails means that it is a delusional exercise, right? Right. So so to be that delusional and go out when the percentages are against you takes a certain kind of person who believes that they've figured it out. To do it anyway. And, well, they, they don't think they're at risk. Mm-hmm. People who do these, you know, sort of books or whatever uh, or, or interview entrepreneurs and talk about, you know, you really like risk. Nobody likes risk. Nobody tries to fail. And, and, you know, so I, I've always found that whenever I do anything, whether it's a new charitable thing or whether it's, you know, expanding different parts of, of the firm, uh, I like to be completely convinced that whatever we're doing is going to work. And I usually um, can explain to anybody why I think what I think, and it's rational. But interestingly, hardly anyone ever responds and, and competes with us when we start because people are comfortable mm. doing what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can tell them we're doing something else and they go, that's interesting. And then they, they just go back to what they're doing. And, and it's part of the human condition. The same way 
when you start something and you think it's going to be easy because what you're doing is in somebody else's best interest, they like basically no matter what they say, they like to continue what they're doing because it works mm. at that point in time. So, so you have to come up with something that's, that's really compelling. And then after you fail, convincing them, right. you, you then go away for a while and you come back again. And if that doesn't work, you go away, you come back again. You never give up. Hmm. And if you're failing everywhere, that means you, you need to fine-tune what you're doing right. uh, so you don't just keep doing the exact same thing forever. Uh, but, but the tenacity and the emotional stability you need in the, fact, in the face of endless rejections is, is really not for everyone. Well, I feel like this leads – and if, if we may just talk a little bit about what's been going on in the world at large because I feel like you have such a great vantage point in terms of some of the macro issues. And I, I think about U.S.-China and what you're just talking about. I think you have two individuals who completely believe that their course is the right one in terms of U.S.-China trade. Um, you know both of them. You've been on behalf of the administration to China, I think you said in your book, something like eight times. That uh, was last In year. 2018. In 2018. Yeah. How, how Talk about see, tenacity. Yeah. Yeah. How do you see this working out? Well, I, I, I think it's, it's more interesting than two people uh, be, because China uh, has been the most rapidly growing country probably in world history over a 40-year period. And, and they did that with enormous energy, central planning, and also adopting a lot of things that emerging markets countries do, which is hiding behind high tariff walls, mm -hmm. uh, closing its markets, and if not closed, n not making them as accessible as, as, the, as the developed world does, uh, and doing different things with intellectual property. And, you know, the U.S., uh, in the um, uh, 19th century, sort of did the same thing. We were a poor little country, uh, and we found a way to use tariffs to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, that creates imbalances uh, around the world. So, so now that you know China's got three trillion dollars of reserves, uh, it's it's the biggest producer and fulfiller of jobs in the world. So jobs have moved from the developed world to China. Wealth has moved. And the global financial crisis uh, basically uh, created uh, problems for the developed world. So now we have roughly half of the people, for example, in the United States who, who have income ins insufficiency. Uh, they're, mm -hmm. they're in a bad way uh, and, and that creates populism. And, and when domestic candidates for being attacked don't result in change for the people who are in trouble – they find a foreign devil, uh, and I was pretty sure it was going to be China for those reasons. So, so, so in effect, China recognizes that, that the circumstances of the world have changed, uh, but, but like all people who have a really good deal, yeah. <laughs> uh, why would you change it? Yeah. Uh, and you only change it because there's, there's pressure, and the change ends up being in their interest. On the other hand, 
Um, there are people in their country who don't believe that. They just want things the way they are. Mm -hmm. Remember, people don't like to change. And, and so here we have the developed world represented by the United States who wants them to change. So, so it's a very interesting thing where, where China knows it has to change. The U.S. wants them to change. It should be easy, uh, except uh, it, it's not easy because people don't like giving up. Uh, advantage. Uh, and, and on the U.S. side, uh, they would want to accomplish this rebalancing as quickly and as thoroughly as they can. So, so what's, what's happening over the last two and a half years, roughly, is, is these two giant countries, which, which together have somewhere between 35 and 40 percent of the world's economy. Mm -hmm. So this is like the two parents fighting uh, and the children, you know, are like hiding. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they're upset. That's the rest of the world, which is slowing trade. Uh, but long-term, uh, potential decoupling of these two giant countries uh, actually results in lower growth for everyone. Right. Do and how much do you are, worry about yeah. that? How much do well, you worry about that decoupling? Because that seems to be the biggest worry in the world right now is that mom and dad will come together. A splitting of the world, essentially. Apart. Right. Well, Partly that's happening because, because there hasn't been the overlap. Uh, and, and I think that, that because ultimately, um, you know, people are rational on a certain level, uh, that, that as, as these two countries see that that's not working uh, for them, uh, that, that they'll come to a table, which is what's happening now for the, I guess, the third time. Right. Uh, and they're doing it not, not to just be helpful they're doing it as they as they recognize that the short term in in china can can, can remain fine with policy adjustments mm -hmm. but they're borrowing from their future and long term if you really go off on your own and decouple uh, and have a slower growing world what's the win in that that's not a win that's and what and what can you steve schwartzman do to help this along well I think there are a lot of people who know both countries, and and I think it's 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 important that 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 people understand where this is ultimately going, which is not in their interest, and and ultimately I I believe that people will act in their self interest, and there will be an adjustment. No no one can predict the way sort of the media wants what's going to happen in right. October. And, right. you know, it's sort of in the, you know, sort of I, I could guess, but it's a who knows uh, because it's really about for the – primarily it's about China. They, they have their hardliners. They have mm -hmm. their right. uh, reformers. What do they actually want to put on a table? And President Xi has to balance that right now. Well, right, so, somebody has to balance it. Yeah. And, and, and in May – uh, when the trade talks basically were, you know, I, I was going to say suspended, but at that point they were ended. Uh, you know, the, the the balance of of reform versus uh, you know sort of the harder line position, the harder line people, you know, in effect had more influence. Now, as it's all becoming more complicated, not just because of trade, other decisions right. that China mm -hmm. has made over the last two or three years are creating more uh, complexity there. You know they've got other things going on uh, as as well that put pressure on them. Uh, that 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 they're coming and saying let let's see if we can do something uh, is sensible. 
uh, it's you can't get caught up in two people, right, uh, or, or, or any administration, right? Be- because if we don't solve this problem, the, the the attitude of the Democrats towards China is is if not identical uh, to to the current administration, it's pretty close. So I think China recognizes that um, you know this is a structural. Uh, issue. It's not a one U.S. president, uh, mm-hmm. and, and so getting something to lower the temperature and helping growth globally is in everybody's interest. Will you keep going back on behalf of the administration? Well, I keep going back generally, uh, Jason, sure. because I, I have a you know sort of an academic program yeah. called the Schwarzman Scholars, which is like the Rhodes, and I, and I go for that, and I have some business stuff, and and you know the the, the, the trade uh, stuff. Um, you know, sort of uh, continues. So I, I, I always have a pretty full plate <laughs> when I when I go to China. When your was, country calls, you say in the well, book, right? And I was curious what that program, the Schwarzman Scholars Program, by working so much, knowing the United States, working so much in China, getting to know their society, their culture, their leaders, what that has taught you. And maybe something that I feel like, especially as the U.S.-China negotiations go on, something that maybe people aren't aware of. Well, I, I, I think uh, and I, I conceptualized this in uh, 2011 mm-hmm. because I, I could feel, you know, a problem starting. I, I was wrong. It happened faster. Uh, but we're now in our fourth class. Uh, and it's, it's really fascinating to see how things are changing and adjusting. Uh, you know, our program uh, was, was the only academic program ever been endorsed uh, uh, in China mm-hmm. um, by the president of China, which happened to be President Xi's uh, first proclamation after he was elected. Uh, and President Obama uh, did that for the U.S. side. So so we have a very unique uh, position uh, in, in China. And I think it's a very important uh, place uh, because as, as things, you know, uh, when they're bad, between the countries, there's more nationalism on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, that um, you know, you you need a place that symbolizes, you know, sort of a recognition that you need to understand what's going on uh, both countries and and find solutions. Uh, Schwarzman Scholars is is global. Right. We get about forty percent of our students from uh, thirty six other countries, and and so it's a bringing together of some of the best and the brightest uh, future leaders of the world uh, to get a master's degree, but basically learn about China and then be able to go back to their countries as as influencers, whether they become heads of countries right, or, or, or media celebrities uh, <laughs> or, or heads of law firms or businesses, uh, to, to, to be able to interpret what China is doing and also feedback right. to China when, it, right. when, it's, when it's doing stuff that doesn't appear to be working, you know, here's what you should be thinking about. And that was Steve Schwartzman, CEO, chairman, and co-founder of Blackstone Group. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. That's on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg.